You're listening to the Library Pros Podcast with Chris and Bob, a techie librarian and a computer IT guy discussing libraries, technology, and all things this side of the reference desk. Thanks, Carl. Hi, and welcome to part two of episode 71 of the Library Pros. In this installment of the 2019 New York Library Association Conference, we speak with David Jenks, Dean of the Long Island University's Palmer School for Library and Information Science. David's an old friend, and it was great to sit down and chat with him. We hadn't seen each other in a while, so it was great fun. Uh, we do have to apologize. My audio, meaning Chris's audio uh, in the episode, is low because Chris forgot to unmute his mic. So I did my best to engineer it to make it sound better. Uh, David sounds great. Uh, so if you're having trouble hearing me, it's not your device. It's our recording. Did my best to clean it up, but that's just the way it is. So without any further ado, David Jenks from Long Island University. With me is an old friend, David Jenks. <laughs> old David, for sure. <laughs> well, yeah, well, tell me, um, tell me um, where you are right now and what you're doing. Well, at the moment, it's funny. I, I think when you and I met, we were both transitioning from corporate library America into anything else, basically. And we ended up at Dallin College. And at that time, I decided I wanted to go back into something to do with education, whether it was education support or teaching or whatever it may be. And through a bunch of alleys and changes in my life, I ended up at the Palmer School at Long Island University. And I've been there as a, I started there as an adjunct faculty member for a few years, but now I've been there as a full-time faculty member for, this is finishing my 10th year now. And 10, can't believe it, you know. And that, it's funny because prior to that, when I was at Dowling, I was adjuncting at, at Palmer. And then when it, once I went to Palmer, I went back to adjuncting at Dowling. So I never quite shook that Long Island College thing. But uh, at the moment, I'm serving as the acting director of the Palmer School because our previous uh, director has moved on to another position. And at the moment, we're getting ready for our next round of ALA accreditations. And I think that the university wanted to make sure that you know, as we move into that process, you, it, it's tough to do accreditation to begin with. But when you're doing it from the outside at an, an institution you're not familiar with, it makes it particularly challenging. And so they asked me if I would be willing to take it on as the acting director, but I wanted to make sure that I didn't leave my uh, faculty status for the time being because I really enjoy the classroom and working with students and doing research. And, you know, deep down, I've always been kind of an administrator at heart. I mean, I was a manager in so many jobs before I came back into the education field. But I like this because I can still focus on the curriculum and the educational process while using my managerial skills to hopefully help help the school through a big transition period. So I consider myself still a program director because there are many of us there. But on paper, I'm referred to as the acting director. Well, I'm really happy for you. We go back and forth. It's a waste. And, uh, oh, yeah. It's always fun. I always recall our, our discussions about uh, the Red Sox. Yeah. Back when you watched professional ball, right? <laughs> I have a question for you. It has to do with where it seems library library schools seem to be going. There's a push now for archivism. Kids, kids that, I'm sorry, the students. <laughs> I do that myself. The students seem really enthusiastic about it. But can you explain to me why... Archivism is, is a main push for libraries when there don't seem to be a lot of jobs practice field within librarians. Well, it's funny you mention that because I was at a meeting this morning where we were discussing the, the you know the current state and the trends in LIS education and what struck me 
there and during that meeting was that Palmer is one of the few New York City area schools that keeps pushing the archival education. And, you know, our program at Palmer is unusual in that we are very much defined by New York City. And whenever I travel, I, I, I travel a lot, and I'm very grateful I get to do that. And I find that the, the, the view of what an LIS education is changes dramatically based on what part of the country you're in. So if you go to visit our campus in Manhattan, everyone there is focusing on museum work, the fashion industry, advertising and marketing, finance. I'm trying to think of, you know, Broadway, the theater industry. The, the demands for archivists in areas like that is huge. The, the archival market is very strong in any city that has a lot of museums or any city that has a lot of cultural heritage where we want to make sure that we're maintaining and digitizing and, and curating things that belong, that, things that are pe- peculiar to certain fields of study. So even in the, even the finance industry, there are so many bank libraries that have archives in them and they're looking for archivists all the time. And, you know, it becomes challenging, I think, for Palmer School, speaking as a bit of an outsider, in that we have to remember, I think, that not every area of the country experiences this. I would never necessarily say, take your archival degree and move on to anywhere USA, because you need to know whether there's a demand for it there. So I'd say it's very geographically. But what always stuns me is that here in New York, it's really tough to get folks interested in, oh gosh, I don't know, um, maybe children's services or well, the school library market is strong because it's New York City, but um, and a lot of the stuff that I consider traditional library work isn't necessarily being recruited for in this area of the country. And I think it really depends on where you're at. Yeah, because there's always been something that in interviewing people to find full time, they're always so excited about talking about that. And unfortunately, in a public library setting, oh, yeah. you know, unless you're a local history library, a really robust collection. Very much so. needs heavy digitization. Yeah. Now, there really isn't much of a need for it. Now, look, librarians are really good at taking lemons and making lemons. Yeah. yeah. And, and everybody brings, because, and I've said this a hundred times in the podcast, because most librarians come from another field, and this is usually a second career, they bring that, that, that gunny sack full of stuff. Mm-hmm. they've learned in their previous profession. And I'm just wondering, and I'm just wondering out loud, if you'd answer this question, it's more rhetorical. Mm-hmm. What can someone who is, has their archivist certificate do and bring and contribute to a public library, or even to an academic library, or a special library? It's funny you mention this, because in on Long Island, I'm struck at how many public libraries have really kind of impressive local history collections, and others don't have an inch of, of that at all. Um, what's, what stuns me a lot is that the local history um, world here on Long Island is pretty strong. I, I, I can't find a community from Montauk to Queens where people aren't in some way engaged in trying to maintain historical record of their communities. Now, we recently received this rather impressive grant from the Gardner Foundation, a couple of million dollars, actually. And the number of students who have been applying to participate in the program is rather high. And people are so intrigued by this idea of maintaining a record of the past that I think that they're not necessarily worried at the moment as to where will I go with this education. They just have this feeling that having this knowledge is going to get them found in some area where they might need it. And, and when you mentioned the, the cadre of folks coming from their other fields, you know, 
we have a huge population in Palmer of students who were used to be something else. They were nurses, they were attorneys, they were um, teachers, they were some other field of work and decided to go into library work. I think the archival education is going to be the same way. They will bring with them an appreciation for how to maintain archival records of the past and then apply it to wherever they're working. So I don't think necessarily that becoming an archivist is in the cards for all of these students. They're going to be working in a place that needs some records management type of activity. And they hope, I suspect, that their employers will realize they have the skill and thus engender themselves more securely in their places of work. So I don't think they're really looking for a profession so much as a skill set, I guess I'm saying. Okay. Because it's, it's always interesting how enthusiastic they are. About oh, so true. And, and let's face it, when you're in school and you haven't necessarily been in the field, you can be really enthusiastic about something until, you know, it's kind of like what they say, every good military plan, you know, looks good on paper until the first shot is fired yeah. and all goes to hell. Yeah. Um, so, this is true with most life's plans, actually. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, it, what's interesting is that, um, you know, when people take what they learned in library school and they actually go to apply it in what they do. I, I can only speak from personal experience. Everything I learned in library school was a good backup to everything, all of my experiential um, interactions with libraries as a library patron. So you take that with you as um, kind of like your, um, your skill set for the day-to-day, -day, for the interactions with people, and then you kind of fall back on the oh, yeah. I always tell students the story of the last time I worked in a library was before I had a library degree, which isn't totally true. It's just that I come from an age where the MLS degree was not that common. And back in you know, the 60s and 70s, people did not need an MLS degree to work in a library. And even going into the 80s, many, many smaller public libraries just wanted educated people. So I was always working in libraries, and I was always being told to get my library degree, which I then finally did whenever I did that. And then from that point forward, I was employed in a million settings that were not quote-unquote, traditionally library-based. And so the skill set that the education gives you is so far exceeding the environment in which you might work. And I think people carrying with them this, this education and set of skills without trying to define ahead of time where they'll end up. You know, let, I always say, let the skills bring you to the work. Don't expect to bring the work to your skills. And it really is a, is a great way to see where this kind of education can lead you to. So let's talk for a moment about some of the, the things that Tom is doing students for, um, for the profession. Mm -hmm. um, now, when I graduated, you know, full disclaimer, I graduated from here in 2001. And I'm sure people like Thomas Kreischel mm -hmm. and um, others who have come after him, I started, uh, he started on my last, my last semester, so I had a full on class. And he, he's, I'm putting the hand over my head because he's way up here. Uh, he's very, he's a genius. You know, talk about people who are geniuses. Um, what has Palmer done with the Thomas Kreischel and other people who have come after him with regard to talking more about the digital end of life? Well, of course, there's been a lot of change at Palmer right now. I would say that. You know, we are, we, we are one half of the size we were when I first went to work there. And that was, you know, like I say, 10 years ago. The curriculum itself, in my personal opinion, has not really evolved as much as it could be evolving. Um, and I don't say that in a kind of critiquing way. I just say that in, in, in terms of what 
people are bringing to their roles at Palmer and what students are asking for. I think what has always stunned me, you know, I'm from Boston, I went to Simmons, and you could not get enough technology classes. Of course, that was a different era, too, but you couldn't get enough. People were demanding more and more and more. It surprises me that there's a less of a demand in the kind of digital, digital library world skills that I would have expected students to look for. And I think that's partly because of the nature of New York, you know. Um, the way that the school library structures work, the way that the public library structures work, um, librarians are, are less entrepreneurial in those roles like what you're doing right here, that that kind of thing is largely your own drive. You know, no, no public library somewhere is sitting around thinking, geez, I'd like to find somebody who would come and set up a library prose podcasting system at my library. You know, it's, it's very uncommon here, that I, and not my experience only, to find librarians, at least on Long Island, who want to move in those directions. On the other hand, when you go into where we have a campus in Manhattan with NYU, there, the, the demand of students is on, on a whole different scale, and it makes me think sometimes like we have two different schools, you know. Um, but the, the desire for more digital knowledge, technology skills is higher on account of the, the, the industrial areas and, and the places of business in New York, in, in the city, that is, is so much on a different plane. And I think since the faculty changes have happened so much, and we've always tailored the faculty hiring to the demand for the classes, we we tend to reflect that, I think, in our hiring. And so I think that you're not going to see, for example, the kinds of things that Thomas and others were involved in. Those have faded when the personnel have changed. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's pretty much where we're at right now. I think, I, I mean, I and one other person, I think, both come from relatively strong IT backgrounds. So we're still trying to integrate these issues within the classrooms within the classroom but um you know i I want students to start asking for more of this i mean they do ask for more in in our surveys that we take students will often ask for more technology integration in the classroom and then you ask them what they mean by that and usually they just want to be able to be better online users or they want to be able to understand how um databases work they don't necessarily want to build anything well it's interesting you mentioned that because when you talk to somebody who's, you know, oh, I'm going to put my air quotes up, a real librarian, yeah. you know, in terms of, and I'm not talking about in terms of the librarians that, when we were kids, you know, the, the stereotypical shawl, yeah. hair, all that stuff, stuff, but I'm talking about traditional librarian today, which, if they're well-rounded, they know how to weave, they know how to do collection development, they're good at readers' advisory for fiction and nonfiction, uh, but they're also... Um, literate in database searching, uh, whether it's an Eric source or whether it's um, all data pro or, you know, anything, Whatever it may be. anything that's, that's electronic as a database search engine, uh, even if it's an like ancestry or something like that. Um, that is the scope of what I think, I'm mean, I, I only speaking for, for public, I mean, I've only been an academic for a short time and we work together. But it's kind of the same thing anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a well-rounded librarian can handle these digital resources. But when I think, and I'm, and I'm, tell me if I'm speaking out of turn, I don't think library schools are really addressing that next big leap. And honestly, a lot of library professionals don't want to take this next big leap into the maker technology and into the, um, you know, 3D printing, the uh, laser engraving, the podcasting, sound recording. 
you know, all of these things, augmented reality, virtual reality. So the, the, the librarians and library professionals that are doing it are kind of like, um, I don't want to say pioneers, because that's, that's a little too much bravado. But they're, they're taking this affirmative step, and I almost want to say are dragging the rest of the profession forward, because we all know how librarians don't like change. Um, so in, in those terms, I think the librarians that are bringing this new maker technology, and it's not necessarily something different, because they've been doing crafts and crafting in libraries for years. They're taking the digital end of it and, and bringing it forward. I'm not sure that that's really being covered in, in library school. Well, you know, it's funny. I am, I'm really... I apologize if I'm speaking out of turn. Oh, no. Uh, to me, there's no such thing as out of turn. That's, that's one of my problems in life. I believe everything is up for debate. But <laughs> um, I'm, I'm really enjoying this phrase, well-rounded librarian, because, you know, I grew up with a certain idea of what libraries were all about. And then when I got my library degree, I had a certain idea of what library education was all about. And when I went to work, I got a certain idea of what good libraries were all about. Only now do I realize that that was totally through the lens of where I lived and where I went to school and where I grew up. And I think to myself how because now that I've been, I, one of my trivia things I love to say to people is I've been to every state but one. I have yet to make it to Hawaii. That's my goal one day. But um, I've been in all the other 49 states, and I always make a point of looking at the library community. And I, most of my friends go find the, the local pub or the local whatever. I look for the local library. And um, what, I, what I am amazed by is the library profession. And I don't even want to keep – I always say library, and I know that I mean – the whole information world. But I know that most people, when they hear the word library, they just think of so-called traditional libraries. It is so different. Um, you know, when I, I was in Iowa once, and the technology skills of those librarians blew me away because here I was thinking I was this cool Boston consultant coming in and helping to show them the way, and I ended up asking them questions, <laughs> trying to find out how they were doing stuff. It's very Actually, I'm very grateful for that because I've really come to believe, and of course, I mean, as a human being, I believe this, that wherever we live, you know, frames our, our outlook on life and our epistemology, if you will. But in the end, I find that, you know, where you are at and what the people want in any profession is going to dictate how people get educated. The dilemma that we always face at Palmer, for instance, is we're trying as educators to honor the ALA codes of education. We are, we are evaluated and accredited based on how well do we meet the guidelines of the American Library Association. And anyone who has read ALA's you know, accreditation guidelines know that they pretty much cover everything under the sun. And whether or not or to what extent any school addresses all of those issues is largely dependent on demand. It's like a, a business system. You know, if people aren't demanding X, we can't get them to sign up for X, even if that is required by ALA. By the same token, the things that the faculty bring to the equation, sometimes those of us who are very tech-oriented, we need to keep integrating it within our classes that are about something else. So I would, I would just simply say that you'd find in other parts of the country a lot of librarians are pulling the profession along with them. In certain parts of the country, a lot of librarians are dictating I shouldn't say dictating. They have a very close relationship with their local library schools. And, you know, I, I still look back at, at 
my very, one of my first library interviews up in New Hampshire before I ever got my first job. And one of the things he was asking me to do, and if I were to have taken that job, was he listed all these things. And I thought to myself, that sounded science fiction in a way. And I realized that that particular library director was kind of a vision, a visionary person, because all the things he said he wanted the library to do was stuff that subsequently today we can do it all the time. And, and I think that unless there are people, you know, practitioners out there who are saying we want this, that's going to that's going to inform, I think, the training and education of like future librarians. You know, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And like you said, to library has to do with the way we are and where your people are. So transitioning that thought process, how do now library schools that are doing online learning adapt to that? Now, yes, they have to adhere to the AOA guidelines, but now we were just talking about how at Palmer School. Proximity to New York City and what's required in New York City. So, what happens if somebody is taking uh, University of Phoenix or Clarion or San Diego or Syracuse, and how are they then adapting with their learning there to their particular region? That is a very good question, and I wish I could answer it coherently. Um, we now at Palma, for example, have an online MLS. You can take the MLS either through online or face to face. Truthfully, the, the curriculum is the same in both instances. I think the challenge whenever you're teaching these online classes is you've got to have an understanding of where your students are from. One of the reasons why I'm a little bit, I'm both in, intrigued and reluctant to consider national teaching online because I realize that you've got to consider where people are based before you, you, you can't very much say to somebody what you need in the Phoenix Public Library is this. I mean, I don't, I mean, I've been to Phoenix, but I've never, you know, I've never examined their, you know, the demographics. I don't know necessarily what's needed there. And, of course, you encourage input from students. You know, this is the kind of project I would like to do because it will help my community more. Or this is the kind of research I'm interested in because of my own sociological background. I don't, I don't really know how we're ever going to bridge this gap of supposed ideals of learning and practical applications of learning. I just met a vendor that I was speaking with earlier in the trade show, we were talking about, um, uh, she, she's a librarian and she's now working, as I did, working for a vendor. And she's, I'm asking her how she feels about it. And she was saying that usually I hear people say, oh, I wish the library had taught, hadn't taught me so much cataloging. I wish they had taught me more, whatever. And she's saying, God, I wish I had learned cataloging. <laughs> Somehow she got her MLS degree and never really learned much in her cataloging class. It's very interesting. I think that there's always this misassumption or the false assumption that, Library education is like a pair of shoes. And if I just had a size 10, life would be much better. <laughs> it just doesn't go that way. In fact, my, one of my fantasy presentations for the Computers and Library Conference I was going to do, it was going to be called, What the Heck Do You Want Us to Teach Anyway? Because every time we change the <laughs> curriculum, people say, I want this. And then, you know, Palmer for several years has been moving away from the idea of required courses, you know, meet the student needs. And they've been trying to bring in more electives and minimize the number of required courses. I'm personally kind of against that, but I always go with what the group. Well, that's the core. And what happened when I went to ACRL this year? There was a panel of people talking about, um, you know, how library school education could be better. You know, every year there's a group of people who knows in 1984, there was a group of people how to change library, 1991, 1997, 2012, every year there's a group who thinks they know how they can fix library education. But this panel, to a person, was complaining about electives. They were going on and on about, I wish the library had made me teach 
you know, we now I, I teach the management courses, and now we're going to go back to make some of them required because, first of all, ALA is separating that out as a separate standard. You must have an idea about leadership, you know, finance, budgeting, some sort of management, that kind of thing. But these people were saying, these people who are accomplished, accomplished librarians who were saying, please make me take courses I don't want to take. Now, I, as an educator, relate to that because I always have said to my students, you may not get where this is leading, but trust me, it's leading to something. And I think the challenge is try to understand that you can't put the same size shoe on every single person. And it would, it would be really useful, especially in the online education era, if we could get folks, meaning instructors, to be very much in tune with what their students bring. Because I will teach a class completely differently if I know the room is full of children's librarians or full of school librarians or full of public library directors. I always change. And, and sometimes the what I call the curriculum police don't necessarily like that. But, God, the only way this is going to work is if everybody is dynamic on both sides of the equation. I hate the, I hate the headbutting of practitioners versus educators. It just doesn't get us anywhere. Talking about those core classes, um, when I was studying, I was going to specialize. There you go. <laughs> so I, I think you're right in that teaching those core classes is important because you have every intention of going to London in school, but then whether it's something financial or something experiential or something that's going to make you not go in that track of thought and go something in a different direction could happen. So I could imagine, that, let's say you didn't have to take the reference class, and now with the understanding that you're going to be a special librarian and an engineering librarian. You get out of school and realize, there's no jobs in there. Oh, yeah. And maybe I should go to public libraries. And you don't have that, at least that exposure yeah. to the material in a, in a reference class. Imagine what a disservice it is. Or how about you just move? You know, people seem to forget that life changes will happen. Perhaps a family crisis has caused you to leave the state. Perhaps a spouse had a transfer and you're going with them to some other location. Perhaps, you know, there was any number of reasons why you are no longer in the world capital of engineering libraries. You know, you ended up in a very rural community somewhere far away. When I was teaching at St. John's, I had so many students, well, so many, probably like a dozen, who had moved to New York from elsewhere. And New York has a particularly strong set of regulations, as, as I've come to find out, having lived here now. Um, they were at a loss because they were coming from areas where the MLS degree was not required. Because many rural areas, they're nowhere near a library school. Heck, they're nowhere near a community college, for that matter. And they've learned on-the-job training, if you will. And I always remind people that, you know, there's no such thing as mandated library standards. They don't exist in the in the world of work. Um, no community, no municipality, no college has to meet requirements to be licensed as a library. We just trust that the education is going to help you. But folks may end up in a place that wasn't where they used to be. And if you were in a place where the MLS wasn't required, if you're going to move, don't expect to just suddenly get a job, especially in a place like New York where regulation is so strong. Um, you know, I, I, I try to tell students, so what if you don't see the use of this now? Or so what if you think this is all you need to know? Life, as they say, happens. <laughs> to quote the bumper sticker. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, perhaps you were kind of just thinking in terms of when I joined the profession in 2001, till now, there's been so much change. I can imagine somebody who was in the profession starting in the 70s and seeing those changes. 
whether or not there's elasticity in their thought process to adapt to that. Um, but it's, it's curious to me how much things have changed. And I've, in my own personal career, I feel like I've been so incredibly lucky to have ridden this tech wave and, and, and be able to be a part of it. Because it's, for me personally, I have fun with every single day. And I was not that guy. Yeah. I, you know, I, my previous jobs. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Nine o'clock job, finish the clock, and you go home, and, you know, you go to bed, and you repeat. And in that line of work, you had no slow period. There was no, like, end of the afternoon break or something. Right. And lunch was optional. Precisely. If allowed at all. Right. Exactly. So, doing what I'm doing now, I feel incredibly fortunate to be doing things like, like this podcast. Yeah. Or doing my printing. All that stuff that I do that's used to be considered non-traditional library service, which I don't even know if that's a thing or a phrase anymore. I guess it, to get, it probably it just depends on where you're from, non-traditional library service. Sometimes I, I, I like the phrase in a way because people are recognizing that such a thing exists, but I hate the phrase because that makes it sound like it's an external, like not us, it's the it's other people, innovator or something, an imposter of a librarian right, kind right, of a role. That, oh, and I tell the students too that when I was, I'm very grateful that when I was at Simmons, the course offerings were so varied because I, I made myself take courses that kind of intimidated me because I thought I know nothing about science and engineering research reference class. And I took it for that very reason, you know, and the skills that I took and the courses I did not want to take are the very skills that I used to maximize my career. I mean, it was different because I, I minded with computer science in undergrad, so I knew that I was comfortable in technology, but I never dreamed that my courses in library, and, and I'm sorry, in programming, my computer science programming courses, I never dreamed that that would make me adapt to understanding how a, a library, um, integrated library system works. I ended up working for companies that built and programmed interfaces for online catalogs and patron systems and acquisitions and everything else. I never hesitated. <laughs> yes. In fact, we had a lot of clients on Long Island. That's how I got to know Long Island, as I was sent down here on business trips so often. Yeah, it is. But again, talking about that that not being comfortable. Oh, man. Well, that's something that I, and I apologize I'm not really hmm. that being uncomfortable is not something you would associate with being a librarian. No. Because it's, it's very safe. It's very, you know, like acid versus base. Yeah. Base. And yet, I look around, especially in the ALA community, at some of the groundbreaking stuff that librarians do. I mean, I always... I joke with people and I, whenever they sort of make a joke about a library, like if I'm at a dinner or a cocktail or something, I say, okay, let me tell you what librarians do. And, and, I, and I really admire these folks who just take the ball and they run with it. I can't believe how many um, – I'm talking like serious things, whether it's – you know, not to get political, but whether you're talking about um, – um, what do they call those communities where people can – Go. No. Um, oh gosh, protection. Uh, we're doing this a lot for the immigration immigrant population. Uh, safe cities and safe libraries, sanctuaries. Thank you, sanctuary cities and safe. They have sanctuary libraries and people are out there. It, my one of my proudest moments. Not that I was involved in it, but when nine eleven happened, I, I was stunned that so many people were wand literally walking on the streets saying, "The cell phones and the internet 
aren't working. How am I going to know what's going on? <laughs> and But it was librarians who were out there with folding tables on the sidewalk with newspapers trying to explain to people where to get their information. Um, I mean, the same thing happened in during the earthquakes. Um, I remember I was at an SLA thing in, Rivers, in CSU Riverside in California when the earthquake of 93, I think it was, hit. And immediately, where did the librarians do? They ran into the community to share information with people. They provided quote-unquote links, meaning information to tell people what to do and where to go. And I thought to myself, this is what it's all about, this idea of information is power, knowledge is power. And it made me so proud of that community because – and all you have to do is look around you. It happens everywhere. It happens when there are, when there are elections going on, when there are huge budget – when a school is being shut down or a hospital is under siege for some reason. Um, librarians are out there trying to be the gatekeepers of knowledge. And it just it reminds me, you know – getting so stuck in my world of coding sometimes and I forget the, the social power that librarians have, bought to, have brought to communities all over the country and it's, it's a really humbling thing to see. Well, you mentioned 9-11 um, earthquakes here in the Northeast with Hurricane Sandy. Oh, yeah. Superstorm Sandy. The libraries are open the next day. Yeah. Uh, I, I know that a bunch of libraries planned ahead of time and rented generators or what yeah. or had old building generators just so people can come and charge the cars. Now, and yet, here's a spin on this now. When I was uh, doing consulting work out in the Midwest, I spent a lot of time in places like Missouri and Iowa, and people would just incidentally say, oh, this, this is a room full of all the backup generators for whenever there's a, a tornado, and we just plug everything into I mean, to them, it was so matter-of-fact. They don't use the term disaster. That's just simply another change of life. I know coming here today, when I was in the hotel getting ready, we had a very brief power failure. It lasted for maybe less than five seconds. And I remember my first reaction was, oh my God, is my cell phone charging? Is my laptop plugged in? Never did I think, oh God, is the hospital suffering? You know, that's how caught up in our world we can be sometimes. And as I'm driving out of the library to come here, I mean, out of the hotel, I see right outside our building, a, a huge truck had a horrible accident and in a fire a fire like I only have seen in the Hollywood movie. They crashed into power poles. They knocked over telephone poles. Ambulances were there. And, of course, I was kind of praying for whoever was involved. But I said to myself, man, we just take for granted that things are just going to come back and work again. And I take for granted that my information sources will still be there for me. And yet here is this horrible incident that happened. And thank God, I, I believe the gentleman is okay now that they took away. But it, it reminds me that when all is said and done, knowledge and information in whatever context you're speaking of is why we're here. I mean, that's the whole point. Even as an educator, I say, you know, we're not here to make you meet the ALA standards. God forgive me for that. But we're here to help people understand what this profession is all about. And, and I'll even put in there once that I remember a, a, a student of mine came to school. This goes way back during 9-11 as well. And the student was close to tears. I didn't understand what the problem was. And and uh, she had mentioned how, as a mother of young children, how supportive she was of the Patriot Act. And she was working in a library, which I will not identify, who got very angry when they heard her say this. And they said, if you believe that, you'll never be a good librarian. And then she stomped off. Well, here's a young student doing an internship. Well, she wasn't a young student, but I mean, she was a, a student. And um, her future profession has just told her that because of her care for her children, she will never be accepted. I mean, this was just such a warped story, I could not believe it. 
And I said to myself, you know, we, at times like that, we've got to remember the common thread, information, transmission, support for people who need it, you know. I try to remember those things. Well, it's, it's so true. What, what, what is, at the end of the day, what business of a library is who brokers of information or brokers who don't charge a thing? Whether you're in a corporate environment, whether you're in the law, library, medical library, engineering, library, science, library, public library, we're all doing the same thing. And one thing in doing this podcast that I've learned, um, no, not just which area or area of practice that you're in, wherever you're from on this planet, it's all the same. We're all doing the same thing. Like I just interviewed someone in London. And they were talking about the same thing. Their gate counts are going down. But people are coming in for digital services. Or maybe they're getting services online from the library. So people always like to, the libraries always like to focus on how many times, every time you walk through that gate, it clicks and it comes to person. And what libraries are good at also is collecting statistics. So I wonder if there, and I'm sure there have been, I haven't looked at I wonder if there's a correlation between the downtick in gate count and the uptick in digital services. Oh, I'm sure there is. I, I've not seen the research on this, but I always tell my students, as a researcher, you're not supposed to say you know what something is, but you can always have an educated hunch. And then I would say that you're very right on that, especially since, I mean, we've all been in a situation where quick, you know, let's let's flip the gate, gate counter ourselves, you know, and every time you walk in and out to go to the restroom or something, boom, you've just set off the gate counter, and then you forget that you've done all these reference questions on the telephone or on email or something, and there was no gate clicking in that environment. Um, but but, I, but I, will, I will challenge you a little bit, because I have always had trouble trying to get librarians, um, not all, no, but in many instances, to embrace this idea of statistics. A lot of students cringe when you bring that up, and then they go into work in libraries and they're stunned at how much they cannot quantify. Because in the end, part of change management, part of you know sustainability, you need to be able to say emphatically what is true about your operation, and that isn't always the case in many places. And I wish that librarians would be more statistically oriented and I don't mean literally you know calculating a standard deviation but I mean being able to say ooh here is my see trends and justify not justify your existence but justify your direction and your decision making and your services and things like that exactly to evaluate your services so if you're spending let's say $5,000 a year on a Roku stick that has Netflix and Hulu on it and guess what nobody's taking it out well we need to now figure out why that's happening. Is it because everybody has it at home and you're not using it anymore? Maybe we're not publicizing it enough? And do that test market where you publicize it for three months and let it sit for three months. And do some survey research. And see either. if there's a correlation in the statistics, the circulation statistics. Or in terms of even something like Consumer Reports um, or another database that you make available remotely from the patron's home. Do an experiment three months on, three months, and see if you direct, you see a direct correlation between the usage and the advertising. And look, I'm going to be the first to tell you I stink at math, but I understand trends. And if you can see the trends in the numbers, I think that, and I think if you articulate that to students, that we're not doing this because we're making you learn this because it's calculus or whatever the math involved is, 
but it's more about examining trends and give them kind of like the payoff at the end. It's kind of yeah. like watching a movie and not knowing how it ends. Yeah. Like saying, well, you have to get out of these statistics and this is how you get out of the statistics and statistics statistics without having the payoff at the end. Or even knowing which statistics to gather and which ones are not needed, you know. And, and I, I, I try to get students to understand the importance of being market aware. For example, when I saw this whole movement toward circulating Roku sticks and things, I thought to myself, well, that's kind of dumb. I really thought that way. Because I thought to myself, it's like, we're going to start circulating, you know, staplers. No one's ever had a stapler in their house. People that want to, well, within... What, four days you could buy a stapler? I mean, I'm exaggerating here. But the idea being, was there ever a need for that to begin with? Yet, on the other hand, if, if you were at least able to say, you know, the, the, the diversity in my community has changed X percent because there are this. Or even when you're trying to run the library, you've got too many people who want the same day off. And you don't know how to put that into a spreadsheet. And I once had a student almost crying because she said, nobody said there'd be math in this class. Well, there was no math in this class. There was thinking in this class. I said, trust me, you won't do anything more than addition and subtraction. <laughs> and, um, but the, don't be so phobic about this kind of thing. I mean, your, your existence depends on can you justify this because no library director that I can think of in the country has ever said that their communities for whom they, to whom they serve has a magical understanding of what libraries do. Uh, our problem has never been that too many people know what we do. It's usually just the opposite. And you, you can't show a resistance to the change unless you, if you don't want people to help you. And just in terms of the libraries, so, and this fits in academia and special libraries as well, you're playing to your audience. Mm -hmm. So what may work in the Sachem Public Library may not work in a public place, public library. Queens Library and may not work in Philadelphia. Or you could even have something as close as what doesn't work at Sachin. Now, for people who aren't familiar with Long Island, these are communities that are literally bordering each other. So, in, in terms of, you know, you could have populations that are separated by man made boundaries, whether the school districts or cities, towns, whatever that may be, there will be different demographics. This may not have been your intention, but you've just hit, you've gone back to the very first question. You've hit the nail on the head about the challenges facing library education because what we think as educators is valuable for students to know isn't true all over the country. It may be true in terms of, you know, if you're a physician or if you're a chemist and you need to know what works, how what works, why what works. I mean, that doesn't change no matter where you go. But what is needed in libraries in the New York City area is not what is needed in Mobile, Alabama or something like that. And th this is so difficult because it's so hard to standardize um, library education when you're dealing with communities that are not the same and we're very much a community-driven profession if you're talking about the public and school library world. Now, in the academic and special library world, it's very different. You tend to see standards that are adhered to, you know, whether you are in Illinois or California or Louisiana, people are using LibGuide. Yeah, industry-driven as opposed to community. Very good. Industry-driven rather than community-driven. Yeah. But I always find it fascinating in the public sense where you can have some right against Oh, that's true. A great example of that would be, and we're going hyper local here for, for Long Island, the Longwood Public Library and the North Shore Library. They have each other, but they have different 
different needs in a final passing. And the same thing holds true for like I'd say messing with the sugar line, right? Yeah. There's different obviously there's different makeups of the types of work that people do, whether it's more of a blue class working working class neighborhood versus maybe a blue collar transition to white collar versus a white collar yeah. um, uh, neighborhood. So, you know, economics plays a big part in that. And and that economic component also translates to what happens in the library with regards to their, what they're investing in and what the needs are of that community. Yeah. Where let's say you have a library that is more blue collar, maybe lower socioeconomic, they're gonna rely more heavily on the library because of the resources that are available versus a library that may be in the mostly upper middle class white collar community where the patrons in that district could afford to buy some of the materials because they just buy some more. Or maybe it's an iPad, or maybe it's their service on Netflix or Roku or something like that. So every library population, that, that every library that serves the population will have a different slant to it. And I've worked in a bunch of different public libraries and academic, and you see the difference in those different communities. And it's always interesting, that it was always interesting to me, and almost difficult in a way. It's funny, because one of the many things I've had to learn, having moved to New York, is this idea of library districts. You know, I'm from New England, where the existence of every library is defined by the political parameter of a incorporated city or a town. So a town of, let us say, 5,000 people has its own public library. A city of, you know, 50,000 people has its own public library. The funding is off, the, but, but what never changes is the fact that you've got people used to library services in there. And, of course, historically in New England, it was very much, you know, preventable you know you could not go to use the other town library because your taxes weren't going we have library districts on Long Island so people vote for library budgets that are not defined on uh, community names they're defined on political layouts of communities so you don't have that that whole digital divide not digital divide the kind of economic divide that you have in certain parts of the country where very very rich communities have sometimes less good libraries than small communities just because of the nature of the community, you know. And um, here is much more, I, I find it a, a bit more of a leveling experience because I've not seen, I don't drive from library to library in New York and see drastically different services. I mean, I'll see some, you know, f finessing changes, but in in... In the old days, I would be one library had an automated system, and one didn't have, person didn't have so much as a, you know, photocopier. You know, you didn't matter. Everything was defined by your community where you, where your library was, and that of course made it very shocking for librarians who simply moved to a new job one town over. It's like, either either, I died and went to heaven, or I went to the other place, depending on your perspective. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, it, it, I, I I'm glad that we don't see that as much as we used to, but it's still out there, I think. And of course, in economics, we teach that. This is the economies of scale when you have these kinds of shared systems and, you know, online networks for libraries makes a huge difference uh, for budget. If totally an equalizer, totally. I think Long Island is an exception to a lot of rules. That's been my experience. <laughs> it's, it's been an amazing uh, adventure living here for me. Yeah. We've been trying to do this for some time. <laughs> it never seems to have worked it out. Never seems to work out. But, but um, just by chance, we saw each other and we grabbed and said, "Come on, let's go." Now, will it ever happen again? I hope. 
I hope so. That would be fabulous. It's a lot, lot of changes that happen in life. And so I tell the students, too, I say, don't be intimidated by continuing education. Embrace it. You know what I mean? It doesn't have to be you get a PhD or get another master's degree, but know whether or not those educational experiences are going to enhance your ability to stay employed. Because in the end, that's how it works, you know? Right. And doing something like that here at the moment. Oh, sure. And I always say to people, you know, I've, I have... The last time I actually applied for a job was like in 1980-something. Ever since then, all the jobs I've had is because I've met people at conferences and things like that, and they've recruited me. We have come to the end of another episode of The Library Pros, and we thank you for listening. If you have any questions or comments on this or any episode, click on the Contact Us form on our website, thelibrarypros.com. Visit us on Twitter at The Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com slash thelibrarypros. Don't forget to tell a friend or colleague and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Special thanks to our podcasting engineer, Dean Meyer. Remember, the opinions stated by The Library Pros and their guests are solely those of Chris and Bob and are not those of the Sachem Public Library, the MS Clark Memorial Library, or any other library. See you next time. You've been listening to the Library Pros Podcast. The Library Pros are brought to you by Pippet Productions and by the Library Pros themselves, Krista Christofaro and Bob Johnson. Special thanks to Sachin Public Library for providing space for this podcast. Until the next turn of the page, I'm your announcer, Carlton Welch.